0: Okay, everyone, if uh, you can please take your places. Uh, I think we're all ready to start. Uh, I hope you guys enjoyed the, the lunch and you've got some refreshments that you've got. So uh, let's hit the second second phase. So just by way of introduction, for those of you that don't know me, my name is Anton Gerber. I'm also associated with the Wider Fields Committee, as are many of the presenters today. And, um, you know, we just, uh, Ashley just asked me, I think she needs some love. So uh, she told me, and that's a poor excuse, um, Ash, in terms of, you know, she she thinks she's uh, getting a bit boring. So, uh, yeah. So I think maybe by way of just an applause, just to get everyone just appreciate her, just with some love, please. You see, they still love you, Ash. So, <laughs> Good, so it's my privilege and opportunity then to just introduce uh, the next two speakers. So we've got Praveen Burra and we've got uh, FCA Defos, both actuaries uh, at a new company, a startup, uh, Analytics Engine, which they've basically started together. So a little bit of background around each. Uh, Praveen is an actuary at Linux Engine, and he specializes in helping organizations to extract value basically he's the marketer as I understand from EFSEA so uh, his area of expertise is data science model data governance uh, all around credit risk which will tell you about more Praveen was a partner and director at Deloitte we essentially established the banking analytics uh, practice specializing in credit risk modeling it was the executive in charge um also, at uh, Customer Analytics at Standard Bank, which is where I believe we we had, uh, we met, and then FCA, um the other part of this business uh, very much involved in modern technology, uh, cloud computing, artificial intelligence, and he 's the a concept brains because actually are so smart, but uh, he kind of does that uh, hard grind late at night. Um, and then after studying at the University of Pretoria, SP- FC has spent a lot of time at or some time at Exxon and Forbes pensions work, Deloitte focusing on wider fields, which is where, uh, you know, the guys met. Sciest Corporation uh, running behind mining trucks with Android devices. Um, you, should, you should tell us more about that one day. And then Standard Bank looking after big data and new technology. So guys, very welcome. And uh, please give them a round of applause.
1: Hi, everyone. Um, My name is Praveen and that's FC. Um, Just one correction there. It's not marketing. It's actually coffee appreciation. (laughs) Okay, so you've all heard this. You've all seen the newspaper articles, the magazine articles, data is the new oil. Um, And as actuaries, we think we know a lot about data. But the honest answer is if you think about oil, there's lots of different types of oil. There's sunflower oil, castor oil, crude oil, and a few others which I won't go into. And my experience is that when it comes to risk data, we as actuaries are actually pretty darn good. But when it comes to the other data, I think there's lots of upside for us career-wise and profession-wise. And, and we'll, we'll touch on some of that as we go along. But just to kind of, I want everyone to be more aware that as we go forward in analytics, um, different types of data, other than normal finance and risk data, become very important and present lots of opportunity. Um, we'll also touch briefly on the different skills needed um, to become the new oil men. What are the different skills we think people, what, what makes a good data analytics team? Um, and then very importantly, we mustn't forget, when you're using oil, you put it into different machines. Um, a clay lamp uses very different oil for different purposes from a jet plane, for example. So, again, when we do analytics, we must think about what is the eventual engine that we want to put this oil into. Okay, and having worked at a bank, theoretically trying to guide the direction of of where we invest in analytics, it's very important to set priorities. How are we going to decide what we're going to do? Obviously, there's a company, it's got governance rules, we've all heard about Poppy, GDPR, all of those things. Um, there's technology stacks, there's IT that you can use and IT that you can't use and IT that you don't know how to use. And all of that is normal. But what's very important is to kind of decide why are you collecting the data you're collecting? Why are you learning the analytical techniques that you're learning? So again, to go back to Mr. Covey, start with the end in mind. What are the use cases? What are you actually wanting to do with this data? Because that will, that should actually drive the libraries of analytics that you're going to use, the data you're going to collect, etc. The second thing is iterate. So coming from a traditional risk actuarial practice, we used to take quite a long time with quite serious risk management, peer review, and all kinds of things before we put a model into production. Um, going into a bank, the life cycle of model build is quite different. Um, The life cycle, and again, you have to watch your governance and and peer review and all of those, some things you can't get away from. But the life cycle is to get a simple model to business as quickly as possible, to test, measure, and I call it rinse and repeat there, but fundamentally it's the actuarial control cycle. It's learn and improve. The business have a short attention span. Strategies and corporates change too fast. You've got to get a model up and running fast, measure its outcome, its performance and learn. It means that you can start with weaker models and as you learn what works with the response modeling and collect as you collect more data, you can repeat the recalibration and put them into, into place again. So the time frame for model life cycles has become a lot shorter. And then the last one which was interesting for us working in a big bank is you can build wonderful models and people will say, cool, and then they'll go and have coffee. And actually figuring out who's going to use your model for what purpose. So, Um, As part of my job at Standard Bank, I looked after the campaign modeling, and we built what I thought was a really cool engine that gave people in branch a conversation to have with their customers. So we built a tool, web front end, you go into the branch, they look you up either by your account number or your ID, and then it will recommend conversations. Not necessarily sales, if you needed to do FICA, it would tell you that as well. Um, And it was really great. Well, at least I thought so, the guys in branch didn't. Um, What we found was that if you're building something for a target audience, so if you're building a tool for private bank, for example, it's very important to have those people on your team up front, designing what it looks like, guiding you as to how they operationally will will use it in practice. And Then once we figured that out and and got, let's call it lab teams together where we had a quanta data guy and someone from business guiding it, the adoption goes much faster because they've designed it for themselves, they understand their workflow better, but also because then they then own it. So when you're working in a large corporate and you're building a model, it's not just about the model, it's about the end guy actually going to use it, and that becomes quite important. There's tons of value in data, and I try to keep this as generic as possible, so it doesn't matter whether you're in an insurer, whether you're in a marketing company, or a bank, or a telco for that matter. The fundamental value of data to a business comes from one of a couple of categories. The first one is the number of customers. Can you get more customers? So on a digital marketing side, how do we find the right AdWords to buy? Um, How do we know which are the right customers that we want? What's aligned with our strategy firstly and which customers are the most profitable to us? And also which customers do we offer services that are different, that are unique and well-matched? So which are the customers we want to get? So how do we in- use analytics to improve the number of customers that we have? The second is the income per customer. And that f- was basically looking at cross sell and upsell and interestingly downsell as well. Um, as customer affordability gets squeezed, you want to be able to separately identify customers who are improving their economic circumstances and customers who are being squeezed. Sometimes it's better to downsize a customer and keep him than actually lose him in his entirety. Um, again, the customer mix, Different. If simply by changing your target audience of who you're targeting to get as a customer can have quite a big impact on your balance sheet because different customers have different margins based on the products they buy and the level of cover that they buy on those products. Um, the margin, so product design, so who's using? in the bank we have the advantage of current accounts and credit cards which have lots of transactions, so we can see who does lots of transactions, who does fewer transactions um, and actually understanding the design of products in terms of different market segments is quite useful. Um, behavioral migration of customers is really interesting and huge. We we ran a couple of A-B tests using behavioral science. Um, just by changing words on campaigns, not even rebuilding models, we were able to get double digit growth on, on, on campaigns. So thinking through the data differently and, and using it differently, um, we were able to get quite good benefits. And then term. So, you want the right customers, you want to get as much money out of each customer as you can. You want them off, you're a business, right? You've got to be honest. You've, you're only going to keep them though if you give them value. And that's important. Because if you're just going to rip them off and make short term profits, um, it's not going to help. So the question then is which customers are churning for what purpose? And from an analytics perspective, that's not just a question of managing churn, it's a question of managing business friction. So from an artificial intelligence perspective, for example, can you use the ability to onboard the customer digitally faster so that the customer can fill in less forms. Can you use computer vision, for example, um, the ability to scan all the information of his driver's license and ID and bills, etc., so he doesn't have to fill in more forms. That's analytics as well. Um, that's using machine learning and AI. So the, the question becomes not just, can I predict churn? What can you do about it? But also, can you operationally improve the customer experience by using analytics in operations? Cool, so I think this one's me. <laughs> um, so
2: Pravin's alluded to a, a couple of times to the learnings that we got and the school fees we had to pay by actually going, being at a bank and implementing quite a lot of this stuff. Uh, if somebody had been able to tell us this stuff four years ago, it would have been <laughs> very useful. Um, so I want to just focus on how the, those, the two big categories of learnings that we had that actually make it possible to get the value out the data so the first thing is this is a just a framework based loosely on one of the ones that you get when you do the google courses right and the important thing here is these are steps right you go from one to two to three to four and um when you see the marketing things and you you see machine learning and we all get very excited about it but if you haven't gone through each of the steps then you end up Losing things along the way and I'll take you through a couple of examples of of what that means So how the framework works is at first you've got somebody let's call her Lisa, right and she does a particular task Let's say Lisa makes predictions about who's going to take up a product, right, but she just does it on her own She doesn't have a team uh, But she's doing a great job at it, right now Lisa gets promoted But we have to now do it for all the different products in the organization. So she gets a team and what we have to do is we have to standardize it, and then we have to teach people how to do it. Reasonably easy so far. The next step beyond that is you actually make a computer do it. So you teach it a whole bunch of rules. You automate all the man- mundane and extract, transform, load, and all of that stuff, and um, you go through that process. So specifically here, if you miss out the delegation step and you don't actually specify the standards that you go through, then you're missing that whole quality assurance and you end up rebuilding quite a lot of the stuff that you didn't need to actually rebuild. So it's important to follow the steps as they go, right? When you get to digitalization, you've generally got what um, a lot of companies have in place already. So you're looking at a, let's say, a campaigns engine that spits out leads every day. And that works, right? So only once you've got something that's that codified and automated and you've thought about all the different aspects there then you apply the machine learning and the exciting things, uh, doing continuous review on it and all of that stuff. And particularly the big thing that they always emphasize here, because we think you do machine learning and you leave it, right? And that's not really how it works. You always need a human in the loop because it will spit out ridiculous things that you. Okay, and then the sort of uh, your bare minimum group of people I believe you need in the project to be able to make it work. We we as actuaries like doing everything ourselves. Um, But there are a couple of aspects that you need. And we can cover some of these aspects from our own skill set. But there are people who are very specialized in these things. So I'd recommend making sure that you at least have these covered. So the first is your data engineer. None of us like going to fetch data. None of us, right? I mean, hands up who likes to go fetch their data. Okay, cool, (laughs) that's about right. Um, Then, so so you need somebody who knows the data, who knows what a row means, what the column means, and all of that stuff, and he needs to prep that stuff for you, right? You need a production engineer, because if you do your whole project, and only at the end you decide, okay, now we need to put it into production, it means you've just spent six months doing a project, and now only you're bringing this guy on board, and he tells you there's 60 security things that you have to comply with, and there's gonna be another six months, and by that time you've missed the boat, right? Data scientists, we generally fall in the data scientist category, it's the stuff we like doing, it's building widgets, it's building models. We we like this part, right? So, um, but we can play across all of them. Um, And then you do need a business person in there because it doesn't help if you go down a rabbit hole and you can exactly predict something and it doesn't have any business value, right? Okay, so now after the slightly boring, this is how you do it in practice kind of stuff. There are a couple of examples that we can work through. So we wanted to go through a couple of examples of where it actually did add value from our experience actually implementation wise. So if you look at voice data, we all think about, oh it's gonna be amazing. We're gonna get voice to text, we're gonna do unstructured text analysis on it, and it's gonna be quick, right? We're just gonna plug something in and it's gonna work you can get value out of it, but you have to be very specific about what you define your problem to be. So, where we did find value in this is we used the software to do the unstructured text, and uh, well, not the unstructured text, just the voice to text. And then we just figured out where the big silences were. And we found out in some cases, a call center agent was calling his own cell phone, putting it in his drawer, and then having a lacquer like, coffee. And you can pick that up from this stuff. Or you could figure out, for example, um, That there was a big systems issues on specific days and you can help them figure out that system issue and then reduce that time you've got a lower cost on the call and also a happier customer on email data uh, the interesting use case there is again be be very specific about what you want to do right so if your customers are emailing you teach it how to categorize emails and then just send it to the right person be very specific and you can actually get pretty good accuracy on this kind of stuff there's, because the is already in text, it's, it's already in a, basically a database, this works. Uh, probably you wanna do system log data and image data.
1: <laughs> um, yes, so system log data provides a lot of, there's a lot of customer contact data that is not in the data warehouse in general. So what you find in, in most large companies is the risk data and the finance data is pretty well structured in your enterprise data warehouse. Often when you go to process optimization and trying to identify bottlenecks in operational process, it's hard to actually get the data of where things were handed over, where things got bottlenecked. And what we often found is that either the call center um, system log data or even um, lots of other system log data would track and allow us to reverse engineer the workflow and to put um, the business process into categories. And from that, we were able to reverse engineer bottlenecks in the operational process, um, which then prioritized for fixing to improve workflow, so that customer friction again could be reduced to improve customer experience. So again, it comes back to thinking around, what's the problem you're trying to solve? Where's the customer getting stuck in our operating process? Okay, so it's not in the data warehouse. What other data is there? We went and spent time with, for example, the call center people and found that from the call logs, we could actually tell quite a lot um, in terms of where following a call through um, manually through the call logs and writing a script um, and then being able to back solve um, bottlenecks in, in the process. Um, image data, um, two applications of image data that we've been working on, actually three quickly. The first one is the most obvious one that everyone's seen is Fika. When you customer onboard a customer, can you just read from his ID document his name, the correct spelling of his name, the correct ID number, etc. Um, What you can also do with image data is actually classify the document, so to actually identify what the document is. And why that matters is if the customer is supposed to give you three documents and he's forgotten to give you the letter from his employer, if you can flag that using an API, you can immediately tell the customer you're missing the letter from your employer. So you don't wait for two weeks when he comes back and says, where's my bank account? And then you say, oh, sorry, we're waiting for this letter. Um, If you onboard a pack, you can immediately identify what's missing, immediately contact the customer, tell him, this document's missing, please provide it. Also using an API like that, if they're scanning a whole bunch of documents in branch, um, if one of them's of poor quality, the using again computer vision, you can immediately identify the document of poor quality and immediately while the document's hopefully still in, at the location of scanning, tell them to please rescan it before the customer goes home and then has to come back with his driver's license or ID document. Um, and then the other application which we looked at but we didn't actually implement was looking at possibly applying uh, computer vision in a private bank, for example, so that when a customer comes into the branch, we could identify him by name. Um, I think it's quite easily implementable. We, we actually didn't get that far in our time at the bank. Okay, so one of the areas that I spent a lot of time in the bank in was personalization and analytics related to personalization. Um, just in the, I don't think we've got too much time, so I won't go through all six blocks, but I'll just quickly touch on, on one or two of them. Um, the first one was sourcing data. So we spent a lot of time on how we source data, how we plan to store data, and how we plan to continuously update that data. So a lot of time on data governance and data architecture. Um, a lot of implications from Poppy. For those of you who haven't read it, there's a really nice document, um, it's bank specific, but the principles apply to any industry, called GDPR. If you read the, the, the data principles in that, it's actually really nice, um, and it applies to pretty much all actuarial work at a principal level, in my opinion. Um, sorry, BCBS 239 is the one I was thinking of. BCBS 239. It's it's um, by the by the Basel committee. It it's basically deals with risk data, but the principles apply to customer data as well as to risk data. Um, a single view of a customer, so any large organization has tons of legacy product systems which have different information about a customer. One of our most successful products that we put into production was a regular update of every customer's profitability, transaction summary, Um, and lots of other value adding metrics which we managed to reconcile to the financial statements and we found that that got used a lot purely because it was reliable and regularly refreshed. So actually being able to create a picture of your customer across your enterprise brings lots of insights that you don't necessarily see in just one product system for example. Um, One of the things that we spent a lot of time on the architecture side was looking at a feature library. So you have transactions for example on a customer and it, does a customer eat out a lot on a weekend, or doesn't he? Is he eating out more as this year compared to last year or less? A lot of that tells you about customers' lifestyle. And creating features like that and storing them in an accessible place becomes very useful. So for example, we were on the marketing side trying to do campaigns, but the credit team, for example, were building credit metrics. And the fraud team were building fraud metrics. By getting all of those metrics housed into one feature library, um, you can improve the lift on the models across the different domains. You give your, give yourself a wider um, sp- pool of, of variables to use in your model build. Um, the profiling one I'd like to just touch on quickly. Um, so we found that when we first joined the bank we just wanted to get an understanding of the bank data. So we just took all the data we could find of the quality that it was, just joined it, and ran some clustering algorithms just to kind of see what our customer base looks like. And even with very dirty data, we found some nice obvious things that started popping out that we wouldn't have necessarily um, thought about. So being able to find patterns and pictures and cluster customer segments we found to be very useful um, we, for example, created twenty initial clusters of our customer base. A uh, simple example was one we call petrol heads youngsters, not that youngsters actually people who were changing their cars every two years because they liked fancy cars, um, whether it made financial sense to them or not. Um, just as a simple example but what and, and we found we built twenty clusters like that initially, and then we built a second layer within some of the larger clusters but Even on dirty data, adding that cluster flag into our campaign engine, for example, gave us material lift. So sometimes you think that, yes, let's wait for, let's clean up all of this, and you have to do that, and that's a process we put in place. But just starting with the simple models you have, with the data you have, and testing the variables, you'll be surprised what benefit you can get from data. I think at the end of the day, sorry, just this last one coming back to treatments. So at the end of the day, all the variables you have about a customer, all of the Understanding that you have a a customer at the end of the day still has to go back to the call face. Someone has to still contact or interact with the customer. Whether it's an interaction on an ATM, on his app or in branch or on the telephone, someone still has to do something and some action has to arise. So at the end of the day, and this comes back to the first slide or the second slide which said you've got to go to adoption at the end of the day. You've got to be solving a business problem. Someone's got to have an action arising from the model and then you get business value. Until then, it's just interesting. Um, And to FC's point, you notice he had business on the right-hand side of of what's in the team. That's very important, because at the end of the day, the people who own the income statement in any large organization have KPIs, and they determine what's going to be executed and what's not going to be executed, depending on whether it talks to those KPIs. So being able to influence the actual, first understanding what their KPIs are, what their issues are. Building models that can help them make better decisions that address those KPIs is kind of the golden rule for getting adoption. Okay, I'm just going to put on a video for FC to talk to.
2: Cool. So while Praveen's getting that one up on the screen, basically all I'll be showing now is an example of where we took a traditional actuarial problem and just threw it up into the cloud and saw what happened. So specifically on IFRS 9 calculations, uh, there's been a big change. But basically you have to be predictive in terms of which credit losses you expect to have on your book. And you need to put that in your balance sheet on the predictive nature and a whole bunch of requirements around that. So historically one of these runs takes between four and six hours based um, on the typical customer um, and based on some of our experience that we've had. So we ended up, um, sort of automating a piece of that calculation. And so what would happen if you actually just stuck it up on Google Cloud and saw what it would do. So what we're looking at is just a, a calculation of, specifically, this one is your probability of default, the, the term to default. Uh, this one tells you your, your role, actually a probability that you're gonna go into the next, word, the next bad category with, in the next month. Um, and these calculations tend to take quite long. What is nice with doing it in the cloud is it's reasonably quick, and you don't have to wait for infrastructure to arrive, um, which we do have a story about that. I don't know if I'm allowed sharing. (laughs) But, okay, so, and then also you can just, you do little filters and so on, and you can then do real-time calculations. You can segment your book live. Um, So the idea is just to get your calculations done quicker um, so that's just a practical example of how that works, and then you can do a little bit of trend analysis, which is what you saw there. I don't know if I went through that a little quickly.
1: <laughs> I think the, the important part to, sorry, just about the, the tool that we're looking at is we all do risk analytics, and that's just credit risk analytics. The challenge for all of us is to think differently about those problems that we do. So as with a short-term insurance reserve, for example, doing a reserve for bad debt can take a large bank at month, um, let's realistically, if 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 it's planned and scheduled, a week. Um, if it's not planned and scheduled, it can take up to a month finding capacity to push and pull the data, etc. If, however, and we didn't speed up that video, that was actually FC playing with his computer. You can get those same calculations to run in near real time. The ability for business to then run multiple scenarios to actively think about risk appetite for segments of their customer base. That, argue, that, that entire risk management um, and risk appetite process can change fundamentally. So as part of analytics, it's not just can we build better models, but can we build models that are easier to use and faster to use? That The, the operational side of, of analytics execution matters almost as much, if not more, than actually just building the models themselves.
2: Yeah, and uh, Google's making life easier for everyone. So you don't even have to think about the computer behind this anymore. So it's very easy actually to do these days.
1: Okay, and just a parting comment. Um, So the value of data lies in its ability to inform decisions but the power of an organization lies in its ability to execute on its decisions. One is interesting, the other one actually leads to value. Okay, I think that takes us to questions. Thank
0: you. Thank you very much, Praveen, FCF, for that, uh, the comments, and uh, I always appreciate those kind of comments that are born out of actual experience, and um, I can certainly uh, also attest to having learned some of those lessons the hard way, you know, in my business as well, and the one especially around adoption seems to be very prevalent in my business at the moment around we do things because we like doing things as actuaries and uh, you need to consider what the client actually needs and wants and have asked you to do, and what's going to add business value. I'd like to open it up for questions. Uh, please take this mic from me. <laughs> Any comments? Snide remarks? Okay, you guys are getting away squat free, <laughs> so thank you once again, guys. um One thank you. is it the snide remark <laughs> um,
3: this is quite cool and all, but I mean doing analytics on google i mean how safe is how safe is that because um like anyone can access that or share like what what are the uh, restrictions put in place to um Yes,
2: that's a great question. Uh, That's actually question one. (laughs) So that's the absolute perfect question. Um, Our rule is first and foremost, we never put customer data in the cloud, ever. Uh, Everything gets hashed beforehand. We don't know what the customer's name is. We don't know what the actual account number is. We hash everything except only the stuff that you need. So that's step one, right? So you can at least make sure that you're not leaking any customer data the the second aspect there is um, Google has a whole team of people just dedicated to security right uh, how many people here know of more than five people in their organizations that do security no right so you've got all of these experts making sure that this stuff's right um, having said that it's never it's it'll never be perfect, right? So, so there's always a risk. Uh, it's a, always a risk we're looking at. So you want to err on the side of caution, rather, and, um, and rather use best practice and everything. So, so it's, it's a big issue. Uh, it's, it's probably the first one we get, always get asked. Um, our approach is we take away the personal, personal information, and we make sure that we at least adhere to Google's guidelines in terms of their specific security stuff, because like they're the experts, right?
1: Does that make sense? Just, just to add, if I can, sorry, if I can add to that. Um, at the end of the day, a computer is a computer. And it's only as good as the security that's being configured and the security that's being monitored and complied with. And, and those steps all, all matter. Um, again, it comes down to risk appetite. So in the early years, certainly um, when we went to the bank, we found the bank's attitude towards cloud to be very verboten. You cannot use it. Um, What we are seeing um, at the moment, it's not just Google Cloud, there's lots of Cloud vendors out there, um, is that a lot of companies are starting to experiment with Cloud. Um, To FC's point, it's a computer. um, If you use it responsibly, and that's why you need the data governance step and the IT governance step. If you use it responsibly, it's as good as any other platform. If you use it dangerously, it's as dangerous as you emailing the report to the wrong person.
2: Yeah, so as the saying goes, there is no cloud, just someone else's computer.
0: Uh,
3: Thank you gentlemen for your presentation. Uh, You were talking about adoption. Uh, In my practice, what I noticed is that uh, on the adopting part, it's fine that you might be using, is it R or Python or whatever programming language to produce the end result. What I found out, the reason why adoption becomes difficult is the form of the presentation or the language mm-hmm. of presentation. Yeah. Be yeah. it uh, people tables, be it uh, whether it's table or whatever. It, it, it makes it difficult for the end user. Especially taking into account that most end users are not tech savvy. They don't want to go d- or go down deep there to learn new mm-hmm. stuff. And how do you really make it adoptable if the technology is so advanced.
1: So, again, if you use the technology for its correct purpose, R and Python are there to calculate propensities or classifications or some statistical thing. A person in a branch should never have to know any of that. A person in a branch needs to understand that there's a customer in front of him, he needs to know who the customer is, and he needs to know these are the best conversations based on our organizational strategy to have with that customer and why. So what we found, for example, was we had to build a simple web front end, as I said, for four branch, and we found the things that they asked us to put on it. The first one was, why were we proposing that conversation for that customer? So for example, um, we see that you are doing lots of um, branch withdrawals. Are you aware that it's cheaper to do it at an ATM outside? Can I show you how to do it? Um, it's specific to that customer. So for for each of the messages, we had to put in uh, two or three sentences as about why it was specific for that customer. And then the second part, which was quite important, is they didn't want, when the is standing in front of them, if the customer said yes to something, like buying a product, they didn't want to fill in lots of forms at that point. So how could we actually create a more frictionless service? Um, to complete whatever the transaction was. So what we found was getting those people from the front end to help us design the actual look of the form, the information that would go on the form. So for example, one of the things that they they told us was we put our web page in the wrong place. Um, In their workflow, they log on to system A for every customer to check up his ID number and that his account is not frozen and a few other things first. So if we could put our web page as the button on that form where they always logged on, it would be easier for them to access the, the form rather than us putting it as a separate standalone on their desktop, for example. So for me, I think coming back to your point about the adoption, it's the message that we have as analytics people, like we want you to buy this product or not buy this product or whatever the case is. How do we package it for the people who are going to use it? Can we involve them in that process in the design and in the layout of that? And can we put it into, help have them actually write the script and the word? Because so we work with a sample of one branch and we're gonna roll it out across all the branches. We get the people from the branch to write it because the way they explain it is different from how an actuary would explain it. I do that answers partially at least your question.
0: Cool, is there one more?
3: Yeah. Thanks for that chance. Um, maybe a stupid question, or maybe it was all in my head. You talked about the petrol heads where you know that they change vehicles every sort of two years. But my question is more around, are we at a stage where you're able to tell you know, what product a customer needs at what particular point in time? So for example, you know, this guy's gotten married, so you know upfront you can already pre-approve A home loan you've you've just had children you need to increase your life cover check on your pension so sort of like um i don't know needs analysis to put it differently sorry if it's a stupid question
1: yeah so we actually spent lots of time on that on that problem specifically um what we found is we could actually do quite a good job on customers who primary whose primary bank account was with us so most south africans have multiple bank accounts um and a lot of not and we have what we call primary customers so those customers who have their current account with us and those customers who are who have standalone products with us like just a vehicle loan so for a customer with just a vehicle loan we couldn't tell much but for customers who have a primary account with us like a current account and their credit card um, we could tell for example every month which customers are likely to end up needing an overdraft at the end of the month, and which customer had spare cash, and we should be offering a savings product, for example. Um, We were also starting to look through credit card transactions to see, are you spending too much money on repairing cars? Are you starting to spend money at Toys R Us? Do you you have kids? Um, So that type of stuff is very doable, and we started doing a lot of that. The important part that we also had to do before we did that exercise was spend lots of time with our lawyers in terms of the poppy and what we could do with that data and what we couldn't do with that data. Um, But the principle is, yes, it's definitely doable, particularly where you have the primary account with the customer.
0: Thank you, guys. I think just once again.